1 Samuel chapter 5. Now, if you've been with us as we've been going through 1 uh, Samuel, 1 Samuel marks a huge transition in the history of Israel. Uh, and it, we transition from the time of the judges to the times of the king and prophets. And the issue at hand throughout this book is leadership. We've been seeing that, we've been looking at that, and of course, you know, it's been said of leadership that uh, everything rises or falls on leadership. And certainly that's true, we experience that in life, don't we? If you work for a lousy boss who's a poor leader, it just, you know, everything falls on that, right? And we've, we've all sadly uh, had, or many of us had that experience, don't you dare my staff raise your hand on that. <laughs> But we've had those times when we've worked for a leader that's been less than stellar. And so everything does truly rise and fall on leadership. And last week, or the week before last, what we did is we witnessed a fall. That there was poor leadership. That, that Eli was a, was a poor leader. He was uh, committing a sin of omission in the sense that he was not correcting his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And, uh, and then... His sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who themselves had responsibility of leadership, were, were poor leaders, uh, to, to use a profound understatement, uh, in the sense that they were committing a sins of commission. They were doing unspeakable things in their position as priests and all. And so what happens is they fell. They were, they were poor leaders and they fell. And so what we left off with was the collapse or the following, falling of the house of Eli and the, and the capture of the Ark of the Covenant. And see, what we saw was that because of their poor leadership, sins of commission, sins of omission, not only did Eli fall, not only did Hophni and Phinehas, his sons, fall, but also what happened was the nation that was following them fell as well. And the people like sheep following after these leaders in their folly, well, they went straight into defeat just as Hophni and Phinehas and Eli went into defeat. And in their defeat, instead of turning to the Lord... They turned instead to the empty shell of religion. If you were here, you remember, we talked about that. And the the fact is, when we experience defeat as children of God, it ought to cause us to go deep into prayer and ask the Lord, why have I experienced this defeat? There's always lessons in defeat for us, and there's always the opportunity to turn from our folly, to turn to our Father, to turn from, from our sin, to turn to our Savior, and we need to be committed to doing that. And so what happened here is in their defeat, instead of turning to the Lord, they turned to empty religion. And they took the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence, into battle with them, and their reasoning was, it will save us. And over and over again, instead of saying, the Lord will save us, they said, it will save us. The Ark being the, 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 the picture of the presence of God. The ark of God being that place in the tabernacle where, where the, you know, inside it containing the two tablets, the stone tablets that, that Moses brought down off of Sinai, the, the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments there. And, and then the, that's within the, the ark, and then the ark on top of it was the, the mercy seat of God. And we're going to look at this as we get into 1 Samuel chapter 6, and it's just a, a really incredible thing to see there, really, this, this symbol, this sign of, of Jesus Christ, the law contained within, Jesus Christ on the mercy seat uh, of God there. And so basically what happens is they, they take this, and what would normally happen is that this this 
This idea of, hey, what's the ark all about? It's about, man, the presence of God. It's the place where the priest would go to God to inquire of him. It's, it's a place where he would seek his will for his people. And somewhere along the line, things got all twisted and they got turned around. And now the ark is seen more like a genie in a bottle or a good luck charm to them. And so God allowed Israel to go into defeat. The ark to be taken captive, and chapter 4 ends with the sad conclusion that Elvis has left the building. It just basically tells us there at the end of chapter 4 that the glory of God has departed from Israel. So we pick it up in chapter 5, verse 1, and the big idea as we come to 1 Samuel chapter 5 is the folly of idols. Now let me say two things about that. First of all, I am well aware of what Pastor Kyle taught last week. We talked about it beforehand. I know that last week he taught about King Josiah from Second Chronicles 34. I know the big idea of last week's message was idols. I'm aware. And here's what I would say. Apparently, y'all got some idols to deal with because we're talking about it again today. All right? We, we, we're just going, picking up right where we left off. And so, uh, so there's that. That's the first thing I would say is that, you know, apparently we have some some idols to deal with. Secondly, um, and kind of along those lines, if God repeats himself, then we ought to pay attention, right? So I invite you to really pay attention to what God would have to say to us here uh, today uh, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 5. All right, you guys ready? Then the Philistines took the ark. So they've, they've, the, the, House of Eli has collapsed and the ark has been taken captive. And after that takes place, then the Philistines took the ark of God, and they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. It's like about a 15-mile journey. It's kind of like, you know, going from uh, East Carson to Redondo Beach, you know. And, uh, and so that, this is what they did. They went from Ebenezer to Ashdod, and when the Philistines, verse 2, took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon, and they set it by Dagon. Now, so the, what happens here is that when the Philistines conquered the Israelites and when they captured the, the Ark of the Covenant, basically what they did in capturing that Ark of the Covenant was they, they now bring it into this temple of, of Dagon and they set it there and, and the idea is our God is bigger than your God. That's the idea. When they, can't, when they capture Israel, when they defeat them you know, mil- militarily and they take the Ark, they're, they're basically saying, apparently your God isn't as big as our God because we want. And so that's exactly what's going down here. And, and so they, they take it and they set it in the temple of Dagon. Now, here's who Dagon was to them. They worshipped Dagon as the giver and the animator of all life. That's what they thought, that, that Dagon was the giver of life and the animator of life. It's interesting, you, you might recall when Paul in Acts chapter 17 when he was in Athens and he went up and he was, and he was talking there uh, on uh, Mars Hill and he's, he's you know, speaking and he, he's noticing all of these idols and so on and, uh, and basically in the, the course of his talking there, he quoted one of their pagan gods. One of their pagan gods, uh, one of their, one of their, their, their guys had, had written of their, you know, one of their poets had written of their pagan god, in him we live and move and have our being. Now this guy, again, we recognize that as scripture and we recognize that as being attributed to Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ we live, we move, we have our being. But, but that's a quote actually from a pagan poet in reference to a pagan god. And I, I just 
because I've got so much time uh, here. I'll just go off on a tangent real quick. But basically, when we encounter, I mean, we've got this, this responsibility as Christians to be in the world but not to be of the world, right? And it's just tricky navigation because we have to navigate through it. And we're called to be salt and light. We're, we're called to, to witness, to, to give testimony of, of Jesus Christ and Him crucified and how He's transformed our lives. And the thing is, is that as Christians, we will always be a peculiar people. We will always be a little strange to the world around us because we don't go with the flow. But having said that, and so, you know, people will they'll see us and they'll think you're weird. Having said that, we don't need to help them out. Okay? And we've all met those Christians that are just flat out weird, right? You're like, you're not doing yourself any favors, buddy. And so we always have this tension and we always have this challenge in the culture that we're to be in the world but not of the world, and yet we need to be able to engage the world. And so that's always this tricky thing. And what Paul does when he's there, you know, in, on, on Mars Hill and, and preaching to everybody, he's trying to engage the culture. He's seeking to bridge culture. And so when we do that, we basically, there's three things that we're always working on. We want to either receive those, those things of the world that we can receive, or we want to reject those things of the world that we, we absolutely can't receive, or sometimes there's things in the world that we want to redeem, that, that right now, the way they are, this cultural thing, it's, I, can't, I can't receive that, but you know what, I can redeem that. And so, you know, I'll just give you a silly example. When I talk about the, how chapter 4 of 1 Samuel ends, that the glory of God has departed, when I say, you know, Elvis has left the building, you, you relate to it, you get it. I mean, every, Elvis has left the building, he's gone. And, and that's, you know, obviously something that uh, this cultural statement, you know, referring to an actual event when Elvis is on tour and all, but, but I redeem it. I, use, I throw this, this saying out and you go, oh yeah, I, you know, I get that, okay. And so that's just a silly example of how sometimes we redeem stuff. And so this is always the constant challenge. Paul, he's seeking to bridge culture, so he uses a phrase that's, that's attributed to a pagan deity but rather, he, he redeems it, and he says, yeah, it's written about that, but really, that's Jesus, okay? That Jesus is the one in whom uh, we live and move and have our being. Well, having said that, this poet who quotes that, that verse, whether or not that phrase originated in Ashdod and was particularly uh, attributed to Dagon, we don't know, probably not, but it perfectly describes what their worship of Dagon was. They, these Philistines, they looked at Dagon as the one who was the giver of life, the one who was the animator of life. And so they take the Ark of the Covenant and, and they set it there as a trophy in the temple of their God. And they're basically saying, look, the victory is complete. Our God's greater than your God. By the way, this, I'll give you this in a modern context because this still happens today. There's a, there's a, 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 a brewery chain that's in the Pacific Northwest and they buy these old buildings and they convert them into breweries and pubs and one of the old buildings that they kind of have bought several of is old dying churches and guess where they set up the brewery on the altar right and so they set this up it doesn't cause as much commotion as you might or as much controversy as you might think it, it, there's some that raise a stink but you know there in the pacific northwest mostly people are just like cool far out and, and really in and when we talk about idols and we talk about what we worship 
what a clear picture of, of them saying, you know what? We're going to worship the, the, the brewery. We're going to worship the, the, the drink. We're going to worship the lifestyle. And we'll put it right there, in your face kind of deal. And, and so we, we see this happening today. Verse 3, as we continue, and when, so they, they set there the Ark of the Covenant before Dagon in his temple. Verse 3, and when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the earth before the Ark of the Lord. And so they took Dagon and they set it in its place again. And listen, if your God needs you to set it in its place, that's maybe a clue that you're worshiping the wrong God. I, I'm just thinking here. You know, they got to, oh, Dagon, we got to help you out there, you know, buddy. Um, verse 4, and when they arose early the next morning, so this is now the second morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. Now, it's interesting, and I don't understand, you know, the original language, but I'll just share with you what I'm told by commentators who look at this. And what they say is that the original language, this phrase is really interesting because what it says, I mean, because we read it, and maybe you get the idea that maybe sometime during the night, you know, Dagon's statue fell over again. And they say, no, 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 that's not what this is saying. What this is saying is that when they walked in, they interrupted the active and current worship of the true and living God by Dagon, this idol. It's as if they walked in on them and it's still going on. So, you know, there they are, and they're like, oh, gosh, you know, sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I didn't mean to walk in on you. I, you know, whatever you're into, Dagon, that's fine. You know, I didn't, and this is sort of what they're doing here. They interrupt the active current worship of, 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 of the Lord. And, and it goes on to say, that the head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold, only Dagon's torso was left of it. In other words, not only is, is Dagon actively worshiping the Lord, but he's broken before the Lord. And we go on to read in verse 5, Therefore neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Isn't, it, isn't sin like that? Isn't it like that when our, somebody messes with our idols and there's some catastrophic failure of our idol in some particular place that we have a tendency to go, I don't want to, I don't want to relive that. I don't, I just, I'm not going to tread on that. I'm just not going to go there anymore. I don't, you know, my, I, I'd rather conveniently overlook and just sort of step over, step around the fact that, that my, my idol actually failed me here in this way. The psalmist said this, those who worship idols are disgraced. All who brag about their worthless gods, for every god must bow to him. And so we get this great picture here of Dagon bowing to God. Again, man, when, you're, when your God keeps falling over, that's a sign that you got a problem. That's a sign that you're worshiping the wrong God. Now, Kyle talked about this last week, you know, and he rightly observed that we are created worshipers. Peter said this, he says, but you are a chosen generation, royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so here's the deal. The question isn't will you worship? The question is what will you worship? Because you're going to worship something. Now, again, here it seems ridiculous because it, we're talking about a statue. 
But as Kyle pointed out last week, I mean, we worship all sorts of idols, don't we? We don't, we don't worship statues, but we worship cars. We worship status. We worship jobs. We worship money. We worship boats. Worship motorcycles. Right? There's all sorts of stuff that, that we really do worship. And, and it can even be good things. You're like, hey, wait, wait a minute. A motorcycle's a good thing. A boat's a good thing. Yeah, they are. But here's the thing. When a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes an idol. And this is why your children can be an idol. This is why your spouse can be an idol. Good things can become idols when we make them and elevate them to a God thing. Uh, turn to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says this, he's writing to the Corinthians, we'll pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 10. He says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware, that word literally means ignorant, I want you to be ignorant that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. What Paul is saying here is he's saying to them, look, you know, your forefathers, they, they were godly men. They were blessed of God. They, 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 were, they were receiving tons of blessings from God. But, he says in verse 5, with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Why? Well, he goes on to say, well, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And... Speaking of sexual play there, verse 8, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor, verse 9, let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has taken you, has overtaken you, except for that which is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Verse 14, and here's, pay attention. Therefore, my beloved. And now when you encounter therefore, you've got to ask the question, what's it there for? Therefore, my beloved. In other words, hey, all of your forefathers, they, they were under God's blessing, but, they, but God was not pleased with most of them. Why? Well, because they committed all these sins. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Did you catch what he said? See, Paul sums up all the ungodly behavior with this warning, flee idolatry. See, now for some of you, this might be confusing because you think, well, 
getting drunk is sin and, and, and lying is sin and arguing against God is sin and sex before marriage is sin and sex, you know, outside of your marriage is sin and, you know, sexual sin, pornography and all that. Again, all that sin isn't idolatry, just another sin. This is what Paul didn't want these guys to be ignorant of. When he said, I don't want you to be ignorant of this. Because what, what Paul didn't want them to be ignorant of was the fact that idolatry is not just another sin, but that idolatry is in fact the underlying root cause of all the sins. Studying the Ten Commandments, Martin Luther noticed that the first two referred to idolatry And then the remaining eight were things like sexual sin and stealing and lying and murder and so on. And basically, he surmised that if you never broke the first two commandments, that you wouldn't break any of the others also. That you would only have one God that you worshipped and that you would have no idols. See, if you're a person who drinks too much, and maybe you're here today and you've got to struggle with alcohol, if you're a person who's struggling with addiction to drugs or with lying or, you know, violent outbursts or so on, the underlying issue isn't that you're an alcoholic. The underlying issue isn't that you're a drug addict. Yes, these are sinful behaviors that you need to repent of, but the problem stems from the fact that you are, in fact, an idolater. That's the problem. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. And it's been said, you know, that the sin in our lives, that it's the fruit that hangs off a bad tree. And and a lot of times we think, well, man, I just need to get rid of this bad fruit. I just need, you know, I've I've got this bad fruit of alcoholism. I just need to get rid of this bad fruit. And that's not true. I mean, yes, you do need to repent of that sin. But just getting rid of that bad fruit... Listen, that's, that's not ultimately going to be that which, which sets you free. See, because the, the, the thing is, is that ultimately what you've got to deal with is the root of idolatry underneath it. You've got to get to the root. See, we were designed to worship God. The psalmist said this. The psalmist said, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. And, and the thing is, is that As we worship God as he's made us to do, then God receives glory and we receive joy. That's the way that it's supposed to be. But the problem is is that man rebelled against God. Starts with Satan. You read about that in Isaiah 14. You read about that. You know, you see Satan showing up in, in, in Genesis and all tempting. And then that's where rebellion is extended from Satan's rebellion to mankind. The fall of Adam and Eve and the impartation of the sin nature. And the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. But see, because we are created worshipers, even if we're separated from God in our sin and completely unregenerate, completely unrepentant, the fact is because we're a creative worship and our inclination is to worship, well then what will happen is that apart from God, we worship created things rather than worshiping the creator. Romans chapter 1, anyone? And this is what it talks about. And so, so th- this, in our sinful state, apart from God, we're going to worship those created things. And the problem is, is that when you worship created things, when you worship idols, it's never satisfied. It is a thirst that's never satisfied. And Jesus told that to the woman at the well. You remember that in John 
uh, John's gospel, he says, whoever drinks of this water, he tells this woman, will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And it's interesting, you know the exchange between Jesus and the woman in the well, most people do. And you know that Jesus asked her for a drink. He's talking about a literal drink. Hey, would you get me a drink of water? And she's a Samaritan woman, and she's astonished that he, a Jew, would have anything to do with her because Jews, you know, typically hated the Samaritans and all. And uh, Jesus is talking to her. He says, hey, you know, give me a drink, and, you know, tells her this. You know, if you drink the water that I give you, you'll, you'll never thirst. She's like, sir, give me that water. Tell me where I can get this water. And he says, go get your husband, and then I'll tell you. Now, Jesus, he's put his finger right on her idol. This is the thing. He's trying to get her to turn from, from her sin of idolatry. And so he says, go get your husband, and then I'll tell you. And she says, sir, I have no husband. He says, you, you've spoken correctly that you have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the guy that you're shacking up with now, he's not your husband. She's like, I perceive you are a prophet. You know, you, 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 know, you think, you know, he, he, can, he can see into your soul. What Jesus is doing with this woman is he's putting his finger on that thing in her life and he's basically saying, look, you got to understand that you have an idol in your life. And what I want you guys to understand is here's how it works. That when, when, whenever I have an idol, something that I worship, you know, a, a, even a good thing that's not a God thing, well, the way it works, let's, let's say this, like, let's say that my idol is body image, which clearly you can tell it's not, but let's say, let's say that I, that I worshiped, you know, and, and had this, my idol was body image, right? So what happens if my idol is body image? Well, then all of my money, all of my time, all of my schedule, that's all going to go to it. And that's how it works. When you worship an idol, it is constant work. It takes all your time, your energy, your money, your devotion, your schedule, your heart. Ultimately, it takes your life. So, so if I've made body image as example, you know, this thing that I'm worshiping, it's going to get all my money, my time, and so on. And, and because I'm worshiping body image, because that's become heaven for me, well, then what would be my version of hell? Well, my version of hell would be being fat. And so what happens then is that, you know, I, I got to stay out of hell of being fat. So what I do is I start looking for a functional savior. What's the functional savior that's going to save me and deliver me from being fat? And so now my savior becomes the gym. It becomes my personal trainer. It becomes my diet. It becomes my, you know, healthy deluxe juicer. It becomes, you know, all of the protein supplements that I'm going to get. And, and this is what gets my time, my energy, my money, my devotion. Now, those things are all good things. They're fine if you're into being healthy and you do all those things. But when you elevate that good thing to a God thing, it becomes an idol. You see how it works? And so for this woman, basically, her idol was companionship. She dreaded being alone. She wanted a man. She wanted to have somebody that would love her. And so she bent her life around men. And she kept drinking from this well to that well to the other well because her personal hell was being alone. You see how it works? And so this is what, you know, the Lord is speaking to her and he's talking to her about that. For those of you who are here today and you've come in thinking, man, I have a drug problem. I've got an alcohol problem. I've got a lust problem. What a marriage problem. Whatever it is. Yeah, you do. That's fruit. The bad fruit hanging on your tree. But just picking that fruit off isn't going to do you any good because that fruit's going to grow back. Here's what you need, and this is what we would encourage you to do. 
What you need desperately is that you need Jesus Christ and you need him to break your idol. Hold that thought. Turn back to 1 Samuel. I want you to look with me there in verse 4. Because what we see there is when they arose then that next morning, that second morning, and now they find Dagon falling down on its face, literally worshiping the Lord actively, presently. And what else do we see here? And this is critically important. We see the head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. And Dagon's torso, only Dagon's torso was left of it. Listen, here's what I want you to see. And I believe this is the word of the Lord for some here today. You're maybe here this morning, and we're talking about idols. And maybe you've long given up. Maybe you think, you know what, I know this is an idol for me, but I can't break it. Maybe, you know, for you, maybe it's alcohol. Maybe you think, I I just can't kick it. I can't break this. Would you see that the Lord God can? Do you see Dagon, this idol, is broken before the Lord? And if you're here, man, God can, he can, he can break every stronghold in your life. He can break that idol from you. You just simply need to turn to him. And and what I want to encourage you in here is that when we close in prayer today, I want you to understand that I'm going to give you an opportunity to cry out to the Lord, to, to ask him to deliver you from your idol. Some of you, your, your idol is yourself. Some of you are trusting in yourself and you, you really have never fully surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Some of you here today, if you were to, to, to die today, well, you're not quite so sure that you would go to heaven because you haven't been trusting in Christ and Him crucified. And so when we conclude here in just a couple of minutes, I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive Christ and I pray that you'll receive Him. I pray that you will cry out to Him because He can break Every idol. He can break every stronghold. Well, I want you to see one more thing. Let's continue. Verse 6. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod. And he ravaged them and he struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Now, nobody really knows that word tumors. Nobody really knows what it is. There's some people that speculate that it was, you know, some sort of swelling that might have been caused by, you know, some sort of maybe a rodent, and that we'll get into that in the next chapter, why we think that way. I don't have time to get into it now. Um, there are some that think that that word tumors is literally hemorrhoids. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Um, we just don't know what it is, but he struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Verse 7, and when the men of Ashdod saw how it was... They said, the ark, the God of Israel, must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh towards us, and Dagon our God. And therefore they sent, and they gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines, and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? By the way, just I could go off on that. They go to the wrong person for counsel. They gather together to them all of the, you know, the lords of the Philistines. You know, they're not seeking godly counsel. And we could spend a lot of time on that, which I don't have, so we won't. Um, but anyway, what, what should we do with the ark of God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of God of Israel be carried away to Gath. And so they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. And so it was after they had carried it away 
that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction, and he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them, and therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And so it was, as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, we don't want hemorrhoids, get that thing out of here. They, they have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. And so they sent and they gathered together all the lords of the Philistines. And they said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Listen to me really quickly. Here's what I want you to to see. Over and over again, and I would just invite you, man, you know, after we do this, maybe you go back and, and underline all the sections where it says this. But over and over again, what we read here is their response to all of these hardships when, when the God of Israel comes against them and, 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 and shows up against their idol in a very strong way, over and over again, how did they respond? They said, hey, the ark must not remain. Send it away. Carry it away. Let it go back. This was their answer. See, their answer wasn't to go, oh, hey, this idol isn't working out for me so much. So I need to reject the idol and I need to receive God. No, what their response was, I need to reject God and I need to receive my idol. I need to worship my idol. And so the response over and over again wasn't one of repentance, it was one of rejection. They didn't repent, they rejected over and over and over again. I don't have time for this illustration, but I'm going to tell it anyway real quick. I, I used to struggle with alcohol. Um... Before I was saved, I mean, I, it's ironic. All my struggles with alcohol was before legal age to drink. Um, but uh, I used to struggle with it. And it wasn't until, and I, you know, thank God, I, I haven't struggled with it for years and years and years. I don't drink. Um, and, um, but I, I started looking at it and I go, well, why, do, why did I have such a struggle with alcohol? And here's what I figured out. I'm a control freak. It's how God's made me. Right, and uh, and so you know what happens is I can't shut it off. Um, God's made me to be a leader, and leaders see everything from a leadership bias. And so what happens is for me when I get into any situation, I'm constantly seeing it as how I would lead in this situation. Years ago, we were doing a building project, and I went into the county building department, and in five minutes, I found myself reorganizing their entire, you know, how I would run things if I was in charge. You know, this is wrong, and that's wrong, and they should do this over here. And so, you know, if they would only ask me, I would have fixed it all for them. How arrogant is that? But I, you know, that's, and so God's created me because he's called me to be a leader, and so I see this all the, the time. But the problem is, if I don't exercise that gift in submission to God and allowing Him to control. If I don't do that, what happens is that for me, control can become an idol, right? And so what I realized was that my idol was control and rather than coming under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and surrendering to Him, what I was doing is because my idol was stressing me out, I would drink because it was my way of escape. See, I should have just come to my senses and realized, dude, you're, you're drinking because you want to escape. Why don't you just 
Relax, dude. Receive the Lord. Surrender to Him. Submit to Him. You don't always have to be on. It doesn't always have to be you running the world, man. And I just came to realize, well, this is, this is what's going on here. So for me, what stands out like a neon sign here is that these Philistines, rather than getting to the place to where they recognize this idle stuff ain't working out for us, maybe we should repent. No, they reject. I got all kinds of other stuff I want to say, but let me just close it with this. You got you to gotta deal with the idol in your life. And you've got to answer the question, are, are, you, are you at the place to where you're going to receive the Lord and reject the idol? Or are you going to hold so much to that stupid idol that, that you're going to deal with consequence after consequence after consequence? I'm amazed at the great sacrifice people are willing to make for their idols at such great cost. So I want to close asking you three questions. We're going to worship the Lord. We'll partake of communion. But here's the three questions. I want you to take a walk with these this week. Number one, are there any idols that you are propping up in your life? I challenge you. Write this down. Take a walk with it this week. Do you have any idols that you have to prop up in your life? They keep falling down. You keep propping them up. And you insist on it. This is my idol. Secondly, what's your personal hell? And who or what are you looking to for deliverance from that? Another way you might write that down is what's my personal cell or hell and what's my functional savior? You know, that's a good indicator for, for, for what you're struggling with. Third question, is there any idol you're enduring pain and discomfort to hold on to? That's a fun one to ask. Any idol that's causing you pain and discomfort that you're struggling to hold on to?